What's up, everybody? It is me, Emmett, your Nuclear Barbarian, here with another installment of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. Hope you're doing well. Today, I've got a friend and return guest on podcasts of mine. He did an episode on my other podcast, Exhaust, last year on some similar themes. But this is Edgardo Sepulveda. How's it going, Edgardo? Hi, Emmett. Very pleased to be here on Nuclear Barbarians. I'm a big fan of both of exhaust and nuclear barbarians, so great to be uh, to be invited and and talk to you about uh, some some common themes that we're both interested in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Today we are going to be talking about what is up with Ontario and what is up with Ontario nuclear. As an American, I don't know much about it, but as a North American, I should. So I am stoked to have Edgardo here. So tell me, man, what's up with nuclear in Ontario? What lay it out for me? Sure, sure. Well, so, you know, Ontario, so the largest or most populous province in, in Canada, but we're sort of north of New York and, you know, we go all the way up, you know, population about 15 uh, million. So that kind of puts us into a pretty large, you know, United States state. I yeah. think we'd be, we'd be, I think we would be fourth or fifth. I think there's like California, New York, I think mm -hmm. Illinois, I think Pennsylvania, and then we'd be fourth or gotcha, fifth, gotcha. something like that. So pretty large state, usually sort of the manufacturing core when when we used to manufacture stuff in North America. <laughs> RIP. A, little, a, little, a little less so now. And and traditionally the sort of the 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 nuclear capital of, of Canada. Right. You know, we've had nuclear generation in Ontario since 19, well, since the 1960s. This current fleet of, of reactors dates from 1971. We are probably one of the heaviest in terms of generation mix. We have 60% of our electricity wow. is, is nuclear. So it's very large. It's kind of like akin to France. It's akin to like, you know, Slovakia or or Hungary. I think maybe Illinois is close to that, but I think, you know, in terms of the percentage of of, of electricity that we get from nuclear. But so we're we're a very nuclear heavy province, but we have some challenges. And the biggest challenge that I wanted to talk to you about was that we are slated for for one of those plants to shut down in 2025 and so okay. there's a whole process amongst people who think that nuclear is the way to go because it is safe it is reliable it is baseload and it doesn't have any direct emissions but to try to you know fight the good fight that is often the case for many you know, nuclear advocates around the world whether it's you know Indian Point, it's Diablo Canyon, it's to save the six in Germany, mm -hmm. is to have these this particular nuclear generation station, it's called Pickering, refurbished and saved and so continue to generate power for another 30 years after 2025. So, so that's sort of the big thing and it's, you know, we've got some time. But, you know, these things happen, right? Like these things, mm -hmm. you know, you have to move, you know, your political pressure and advocacy in order to kind of save these uh, these plants. Because in the absence of which, we are going to do, or what is going to happen in Ontario is what has happened in so many other places, is that, you know, the, the, the minute those plants get switched off, guess what's going to get fired up? 
Got that natural gas, baby. (laughs) Right. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And we've got a very clean grid as a result of 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 the of the you know sixty percent nuclear. And so you know we don't want to go back in time. Yeah. So what? Okay. You're right. These things happen. You know, this is what's going on. Lay out what are the political players for me, and right. like who's against, who's in favor, what arguments are people using? Right. Well, um, you know, it's the typical ones. The, there's there's a couple of differences than you know from from like an Indian Point or from you know the the Dresden and Byron in 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 Illinois or or Diablo Canyon in in California, and and or you know the the six German plants in the six nuclear plants in Germany, and the difference the big difference is that that these are the the plants that are slated to be shut down are are owned and operated by a, a public power company, right? So they're not owned by they're not owned by private utilities, the investor-owned utilities as they're called in the United States. They're, they are owned essentially like the equivalent of the Tennessee Valley Authority, right? So, so it's public power. It is, it is the 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 corporation. The authority is called Ontario Power Generation, and it is a hundred percent owned by the province, by the state. And so, we don't have to, unlike Indian Point, where it was Entergy. Right? right, or you know, in Diablo Canyon, where it was, it was well, it is PG&E. Here, we don't have to deal with persuading a private operator to continue to do something that may or may not be in its commercial interest, mm-hmm. or that may or may not be getting pressure from you know anti-nuclear advocates to shut down, and where deals are made between the government, as we understand it to be the case in Indian Point, and the private operator. To kind of like, you know, oh, I can save one of the two. So the situation is different in terms of who needs to be lobbied, who mm-hmm. needs to be persuaded to continue to do that. It's, and you know, that makes it simpler in some sense, but in the same way that that people who believe that this is, that these plants should be saved uh, and should not be mothballed, there are equally other people who believe that that, that should be, in, you know, in fact, the case. And there's also lobbying government to do that, right? But ultimately, this is a, a ministerial decision. It's it's done by the equivalent of the, the Secretary of Energy mm-hmm. uh, in California or the Secretary of Energy, you know, in New York. It's a decision of the Minister of Energy whether or not ultimately to shut these things down or to authorize that they be refurbished. And in terms of the process, these are reaching their slated 30-year, well, they're actually gone a bit beyond. So they would need to be refurbished, right, Mm -hmm. in terms of some of the major components that have to be refurbished. This is pretty standard. We already have a very large refurbishment program for some of the other reactors. So it's not as if this is new, but we're trying to persuade the government to be able to refurbish these other ones as well. Mm-hmm. And rather than that, rather than having to shut them down. So so that's the process. But I also thought that it would be, you know, in the context of, you know, the political debate in the United States mm-hmm. about public power. And what does it mean? You know, the idea of, you know, municipalization, the idea of you know, sort of the ownership of of whether it's 
municipal water or municipal electricity to go a bit sort of a little bit back in time, Emmett, and kind of start talking about why is it that we in Ontario, like most of Canada, have public power and, and, you know, some of the advantages and disadvantages of that. And then, you know, compare it in contrast to, you know, the public power movement and the regulatory movements of the United States, you know, and how our kind of how our sectors have developed since, you know, way back in time to be able to talk about, you know, specifically nuclear. Because one of the things that was that I was I was crunching the numbers in the United States, you know, you have in the United States, I think, purely public power nuclear stations. I think there's like eight or nine out of the 93. Mm-hmm. There's the, the seven or eight that are owned by the TVA. And then you've got uh, one, Cooper owned by the Nebraska co-ops. And then, you know, there's a bunch of them that are sort of, you know, partial ownership. But I crunched the numbers, 18, eight, like in terms of capacity, 18% of all nuclear power is owned by public or cooperative entities in the United States. So that's a that's a very significant. It's certainly higher than renewables, right? Yeah. Renewables yeah. is like probably one or two percent mm-hmm. of public power of existing private public power owns renewables. On the other hand, they're kind of overweight on, on nuclear, which is I think is important kind of like a factoid, most people don't know that. Mm-hmm. And B, it's important as to you know the theory and versus the practice of actual public power. Gotcha. So, yeah, I didn't know it was that much of nuclear that was public. That's fascinating. So we'll get into some of the differences here and how this came about. Let's talk about Ontario and how it came about in Ontario. Was Mm -hmm. Ontario, I'm assuming it was a public power entity before nuclear came onto its grid. So what was was it like before nuclear and what was it like after? Sure. You know, like like in the United States and like most other countries in the world, I mean, the original the original grid was a series of kind of a private entrepreneur, you know, think of Edison, you know, think of some of these other other people that made, you know, the, the pioneers and also made a bunch of money. And so, you know, it was certainly the case in 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 Ontario as well. We were, you know, we had relatively early adoption. I think Toronto, which is the capital city of, of Ontario and the largest city, I think was the first city in the world to have an, like, an electric railway. Like I think it was 1883. It was wow. very, very soon. Yeah, no, it was very soon. But it was all, it was all private, right? And mm. it was owned by you know, the richest men <laughs> of, of the city, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty much the case you know, around the world. You know, and then what they used to do, and this is sort of you know, uh, what people used to rail against was that, you know, these, what were later to be called robber barons, would get, you know, their friends in, you know, city government, Mm -hmm. uh, and they would get 20-year or 30-year charters, right? Right. (laughs) And, and, you know, often there would be kickbacks, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the politics were dirty at the time. Municipal politics were particularly dirty. And, And so, you know, people were complaining that this fantastic new source of power electricity mm-hmm. that could that could light the street that could run tramways and electric trains 
was costing a lot. And it was only in the city center. It was owned by rich industrialists. And, you know, the city was in cahoots with it often, like the city politicians. And so, you know, in the context of like the progressive era in the United States and in Canada, kind of like after Reconstruction, before Second World War, there's just a lot of agitation about this, that people don't mm. like to be fleeced, right? That yeah. it, was, it was too expensive, it was unreliable, you know, it was focused on, you know, just, just the rich people having it and industrialists, and they were charging an arm and a leg, right? So, mm -hmm. so classic pocketbook economic uh, populism. And out of this, you know, we see in Canada, in, in Ontario in particular, in New York, in New York State, you know, this, this push for either public power, because, you know, people thought that they could do it better rather than private enterprise, or the regulation of, of, of private, private monopolies. So it's out of this that in, as a result of that kind of political agitation, we have an election, a uh, provincial election in, in 1905, which is fought on the idea of public power. Right, like the the mm. one the one the one that was the election issue, and you know the the new government was voted in overwhelmingly, and so immediately in the following year they establish what would be become the the largest electricity company at the time in the world, which was called the Hydroelectric Commission of Ontario, which was the idea, and you'll recognize this because. The TVA under the New Deal is a copy-paste of, of, of what is HEPCO, which is that based on the idea that there would be a state provision of, of generation and transmission, and that would be provided publicly at cost, right? And so that was the slogan, power at cost. And, and then they would be they it's provide, mightily direct. <laughs> yeah, I know. Power at cost. I mean, it was it was super successful. Power at cost. That's it. Power at cost. And then they would do the the generation and the transmission, and then they would deliver that power to municipally owned distribution companies, mm -hmm. right? So that model is is the TVA, right? They provide generation and transmission, and then they deliver it to co-ops. Right, and so that was the vision, and so and they had to do it in a democratic way because obviously the people who were providing power at the time were complaining, of, you know, were were not going to give up their monopolies easily. So what had to happen was that, you know, this 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 commission was created. They had to have individual city by city votes, plebiscites, basically, that said, mm -hmm. listen, yes, we want to take this power. And then each of them had to have subsequently in 1908 a series of votes to be able to issue the bonds to be able to actually build the distribution networks. Because at this point, the cities don't have any taxing power, right? And so out of this, you get HEPCO, which is the, the Hydroelectric Power Commission of, of Ontario. It, it first does the first transmission from Niagara Falls, which was at the time one of the larger generating stations in the world. You know, it starts to provide power in 1910. It then builds a very large, at the time, an even larger generation station at Niagara Falls. And then it sort of moves uh, forward. And I'll, I'll, I'll put a, like a pin on there because what's happening in parallel in the United States is that 
like people like Gifford Pinchot, who is at the time the first commissioner of the 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 Forest Service, mm-hmm. and more importantly, the guy I wanted to talk about was William Randolph Hearst, right? The Newspaper man, Citizen Kane, was also a big believer in public uh, power. And he actually, this is one of the things I was looking into, he ran for mayor of New York in 1905 under his own party called the Municipal Ownership League. No way. That's wild. And, And the Municipal Ownership League was, you know, the idea that we should have public power and public utilities in New York. He lost by the guy who beat him got like 37.7% and Hearst got 37.2%. So he came very close, yeah. right? That's a, um, I mean, that's a nice like progressive era holdover. Right? Well, that's exactly. Like, that's, where, that's where it starts to span is that in the US, the progressivism it either takes the form of municipalization, as you say, or it goes into private regulated monopoly. But Ontario stays public, which is pretty incredible. Right. Yeah, it stays public. And so there's a push in the United States, you know, it, it, there's a, a pushback from, you know, private enterprise. And the compromise is regulation, as you say, mm-hmm. right? So the in New York, the Public Service Commission gets established in 1907, right? Mm-hmm. It, like not soon after that. But, you know, People who in the United States who continue to believe in public power don't give up. The public power advocates manage to get the sufficient number of votes, uh, of, of signatures, to put up in the 1922 state election in California, Proposition 19, which would have, which would have created in California the equivalent of the the Hydroelectric um, Commission of Ontario. It, it, you know, it would have... Wow. It would have resolved. It would have changed the constitution. It would have put up five hundred million dollar bond to actually create this commission that would provide public power at cost. It was defeated, and the people who were lobbying against it were PG&E mm-hmm. and and Southern California Edison and yeah. Southern California Edison. So it wasn't to be in California. And then the next part is that in you know with this ontario experiment as it was called you know the companies in the united states wanted to make sure that you know these kinds of ideas didn't drift further south and so there was all kinds of lobbying and and you know studies and reports to try to discredit it but it was not until fdr as governor of new york campaigned on public power, amongst other things, mm-hmm. and established the New York Power Authority in 1931. He then runs for he then runs for president, wins, and establishes the the Tennessee Valley Authority based on based on the Ontario model. And you know had had advisors go to Ontario. The one of the his big supporters in in the Senate, George Norris from Nebraska was a big fan of the Ontario experiment and and he was one of the co-signers of the act to create the rural the rural um, electrification act yeah that's right the rural electrification act which is one of the key acts of of the of the new deal and to this day in Nebraska which is where Norris is from is is the one state that has 100% public power via its hundreds or so co-ops in Nebraska 
Wow. Yeah, the Rural Electrification Act, Robert Bryce has a great chapter on it in A Question of Power, where he does sort of a rundown. And it sets up tons of co-ops, some which still exist. One of the largest ones is in Texas. And I mean, this goes to show like how complex the U.S. grid is as both a legal and infrastructural entity that it has like co-ops that still live on in like RTO areas. It's a very strange system we have over here compared to the Remarkably straightforward with straightforward slogans, power at cost, Ontario public power. Right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the kinds of, you know, so, so like the, what they call the Ontario experiment gets used by, you know, proponents of public Mm -hmm. power. And as a way, FDR used to call it benchmark regulation. Right, mm-hmm. like where where we will like the 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 you know to show that Americans are overpaying for private power, and as a way to get political buy-in to the idea of regulation, right, including the breaking up of these trusts, you know, starting in 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 1936, 1937, was to show, look, you know, here's you know, the benchmark against which we can judge ourselves and look how, you know, cheaply they're providing power. So the idea that you can't provide lower power, you know, is just not a valid response. It's basically just profits. And so on the other hand, you know, opponents of it were calling it at the time Sovietized or communistic uh, mm-hmm. approach because it goes against the very idea of private enterprise. Right. And so these debates continue to this day, right? Mm-hmm. Like the idea of public power and the public power movement that exists in the United States, it doesn't really exist in Canada because that's what we have. We've achieved it. It's right. a protection of it rather than a proposal to move towards it. You know, it's the same debate, right? Who should do it? Is this a basic service? And what's the most effective efficient, reliable, and ultimately politically responsive way to provide what we all consider is a, you know, a basic public service. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that, that makes sense to me. I mean, I know FDR had plans to do more public power stuff, but he burnt all of his political capital on his second term on court packing, which not a lot of people liked. So it stopped at the TVA and rural electrification, though he did have a major champion in David Lilienthal who would go on to do many things. Mm-hmm. But what I'm interested in is by the time nuclear energy shows up in Canada in the 60s, mm-hmm. what is the playing field look like then? It's had this, Ontario has had this public power for a while. It's matured. Right. As a political entity, maybe, uh, I don't know if parts of it have have ossified or if there are major fights over nuclear in Canada or what. How does it look like when it wants to, Ontario wants nuclear? Right, right. So, so like the rest of North America, there's this huge growth in electricity, right? And so- Staggering. um, Staggering. 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 (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, you know, you're starting, you're starting with- you know, in the in the nineteen nineteen in the teens and twenties and thirties and forties and fifties, you're growing at ten, twelve, fifteen percent year over year. I mean, that literally means that you're doubling your grid every seven or ten years, right? Amazing. During the Second That's War, you. the same thing. Yep. And then you're going, and so basically by the forties, we have a situation where Hepco is mm. now consolidated and and owns all the all the generation and transmission. Mm-hmm. And all, most of the municipalities 
have municipalized their distribution company. So we have an integrated 99% publicly owned system in, in Ontario. Wow. Okay. Wow. And, you know, and, and the other, and so, you know, if, if this system was, you know, was influential in the 1920s and 30s in the United States, it's also influential in the rest of Canada, the other provinces, right? It was soon based on this benchmark, this example of power at cost, that is the strongest political motivation for other provinces to do the same. And so they slowly over the sort of the, the interwar period go through the same process and then by and that gets consolidated in the 40s and 50s so you know like the mega large entities like hydro quebec right mm -hmm. which is you know sells power to new york and maine and all these provinces they get formed in that time so it is not only influential south of the border mm -hmm. it's also influential east west across the other gotcha. provinces of ontario right so at this point when you're going into the 50s and 60s you're at a situation where across canada and again these are provincial entities we probably have 95 percent public power wow in canada it's literally All unimaginable to me right it's from and they're all the same situation they're all different variations of it's always public you know you have the the uh, separate entities one that does the generation and transmission and then the other one is the distribution that's a situation in ontario or you have fully integrated companies like like ontario like uh, quebec hydro mm -hmm. quebec and 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 in british columbia on the west coast where you have a integrated where it's the same company throughout right distribution gotcha. generation right but anyway you're you're into the 50s and 60s and you're at 95 percent public power in canada at all levels generation transmission and distribution but what happens in ontario is that in the 40s and 50s as a result of this phenomenal growth we're running out of water right we're running out of good stuff like i mean we've 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 we have You've sucked as much hydro as you can possibly yeah, get we've out sucked of as we can, yeah. unless it's super far north. And so and we're growing at we're doubling the grid. And so we start putting in coal. Right. Right. Makes in sense. Right. Because you can have in, it on site. It's plentiful. Right. Yeah. You, I mean, you can build huge, huge, huge generators. Huge. Yeah. 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 And we're running. At, we're, and so we go into coal. And then in the 50s, we start, you know, start the research process to develop our Canadian-made nuclear technology, which is ultimately called CANDU. As an aside, all of our nuclear reactors are CANDU, they're Canadian technology. They are different than, than what is made in the United States and what other pro, uh, countries do. I'm not an engineer, but the, the, it, it, is, it is pressurized heavy water using natural uranium so the uranium doesn't have to be enriched so interesting okay right oh and that's why some people criticize candies for potentially being dual use right is that why well no? it can't be it can't be dual use because okay. because it's not enriched because it's enriched yeah 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 and so the the strategic decision was enrichment process is 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 expensive we don't want to do it in canada we don't want to rely on anyone else and mm -hmm. so we can just mine the uranium and literally the uranium comes you mine it you put it into the pellets and then it goes into the 
reactor. You, there's no enrichment. It's just that pipeline straight from Saskatchewan all the way to <laughs> right, Ontario. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the so those are the can do. And ultimately, once it was developed in Canada, we exported it to a bunch of different countries. The same way kind of like a Westinghouse or whatever, or GE mm-hmm. or Toshiba would have done it. Um but anyway, we start running out of, we, you know, we're growing and Ontario Hydro, sorry, HEPCO, at that point starts to think, look, are, there's no more rivers and there's no more areas that we can do the hydro in. We're growing, we're doubling, we're going to be running out of, we're going to be running out of electricity. In the, four, in the late 40s, actually, they had to ration electricity because there's just too much growth and there wasn't enough capacity. So... Looking forward, they start to go into into high, uh, into coal and nuclear, and there's a series of kind of like experimental reactors. There's a first one that is like a commercial reactor that goes in at Douglas Point in the 60s, right? So again, and then in I think it was 1966, they fully commit to uh, a rollout, and they they do. And this is in the days when in North America, we used to be able to build things fast and efficiently, yeah. right? So they commit, uh, they commit in 1966 or 64, they break ground on, on Pickering in 1966 and they're operational in 71, right? Wow. That is Five years. Great. Yeah. And, and so, and then so that's, and, and the way in which the Candu reactors work is that you know, we don't have sing, single unit plants. They always are built in fours, right? So there's Pickering 1, Pickering 2, Pickering 3, Pickering 4. And uh, they build, they start Pickering 1 in 66 and 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 it gets finished in 71. Um, 72, 73, 74 are the other ones. They all get built in an average of about five years. <laughs> wow. So you're building a lot of nuclear even into the first energy crisis of right. the 70s. Right. And then, so that's Pickering. Then comes Bruce. So Pickering is on Lake Ontario, maybe 150, no, maybe 75 kilometers east of where, I, where I'm sitting. Bruce is a little further north. And the other one is Darlington, which is, again, maybe 100 kilometers east of where I'm sitting. And so in the end, they build three, right? And they, they build three. The early ones were fast, efficient on budget. Not so much the last. They were, you know, and then you're getting into the problems, right? You're getting into the problems of nuclear build in North America, right? Like the early ones. So let me, so let me ask you about that because in the U.S., I was just talking to Rod Adams. Right. He did a great explanation of how there were also mechanical things that were going wrong just in terms of nuclear production, in addition to victories of the environmental movement over nuclear and mm-hmm. getting linear no sh- threshold instituted. Does Canada Mm -hmm. adopt the same framework for radiation and does that add to costs and complexities or does something else happen? Yeah, you know, um, I suspect, I mean, we also have, you know, a federal nuclear regulator and the question of the, you know, whether or not, for example, after Three Mile Island, you know, things get harder. I'm not sure. That's the question I'd have to going to take a pass on, okay, whether or okay. not it becomes more difficult. 
what what I've what I've learned is that you know the the kind of learning by doing and even though the reactors are all the same technology, there were different sizes mm-hmm. and different versions of the same kind of basic technology. And the first ones were relatively small; they were like ha- half a gig, mm-hmm. right? But by the end, they were like eight hundred or nine hundred megawatts, right? And so. As they get built, they're tweaking the technology and making them bigger. And yeah. so they're not all first of a kind, obviously, but they weren't also just replication the way in which it was done in France, for example. Right, they weren't just was, mesmer stamping. They the were not doing that. that. No, no, yeah. they were they were tweaking it and making them better at the time and you know, expanding them, making them bigger to try to kind of take advantage of the economies of scale. But but you know the last one the last one comes on board Darlington comes on board in i think it was 1993 and in 1993 at that point you have 18 you have well you have uh, 20 reactors and we are at that point probably 75 or 80% nuclear ontario wow. right wow. and then but it, but but like you know in a great great episode with Rod Adams one of the things that happens is that you know, a lot of these decisions get made in the 60s and 70s when we're growing still at six or seven or eight percent. But then we get kind of like, you know, the recessions associated with the, you know, the energy crisis of 73, 79. We get a particularly brutal recession in 1990 in Ontario. It's a huge demand drop. It's a huge demand drop. And suddenly, the idea that you're building pretty lumpy nuclear reactors to be able to provide power for 30 or 40 years and power that was basically doubling in size um, every 10 years, growing at seven or eight percent, you know, there were political decisions at the time that that they said, listen, because there were plans for more, right? Mm-hmm. And they got kiboshed, right? Mm. They were kiboshed because, you know, in 1990s, you know, it was a different situation than than it is now. There was also a fundamental change in the the idea of growth. Yes, that's right. huge. That shift is huge in America. That really kicks off in the 70s because we have Lovins and. Costa and a few other people who, well, Costa less so, he's more of an economist, but Lovins and Ralph Kavanaugh, et cetera, who are like not buying the growth thing. Even people who, who would otherwise be smarter about it, like Christopher Lash, favorite writer of, becomes deeply skeptical of the growth ideology and spends the rest of his career critiquing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, you know, in Ontario, you know, through this time, you know, once you start the ex, you know, once you've reached the last farm, the rest of it is, you know, that's that's extensive. Once you reach the extensive frontier, the rest of it is intensification, right? Yeah. And so, you know, just like the utilities in the United States and Canada, you know, part of the idea was to generate consumption, right? Yeah. And so they would be, you know, traveling sales and circuses and stuff like that with, you know, with the the washing machines in the back and, you know, the electric Mm -hmm. ranges and all that kind of stuff to try to kind of generate that. Right. But yeah. And so we have, we have, we have, we also have a political change and which kind of gets to some of the discussions we've been having. All of this process 
gets approved, all of the 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 political decision making that ultimately has to approve the plans of this publicly owned um, utility are based on conservative governments, right? Mm -hmm. And unlike the United States where we actually have a conservative party (laughs) and it's called the conservative party and we also have a liberal party, right? So it's very easy to follow. So, So Ontario, the nuclear rollout occurs under conservative governments. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but, you know, and they are in power most of the 60s and 70s and up to the mid 80s when most of these decisions were taking place. In the late 80s and up to the mid 90s, we go through a process of, of liberal governments and 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 the third party here which is called the new democratic party which is a sort of normally social democratic party mm-hmm. and they are they are heavily influenced by lovens mm. and the idea of the soft energy much more so than the conservatives right and they're the ones who say you know so lovens comes up here and actually meets with this, you know, what is now called the Ontario Ontario Hydro, it had changed names, it used to be called the Hydroelectric uh, Commission of Ontario, now it's called Ontario Hydro, and they meet, and they basically say, you know, this growth thing is maybe not such a great thing, and the first thing they do is they cancel further expansions of nuclear, mm-hmm. right? Always so, the first to go. Right, first one, right? And so so the idea that you, 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 you become, you start at parties of the 60s, as nuclear neutral or nuclear interested, mm-hmm. you know, by the mid 70s and certainly late 70s, they have taken on the soft energy mantra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because right? his essay in Foreign Affairs comes out in 76. Right. Yeah. So at that point, and so it, it and so it's it's through that process that you get this both like external constraints as a result of basically a a slowing down of the growth, then you get actually negative growth. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you need lots of power to meet demand um, is no longer like a done deal, right? Especially when you have to plan it for like 30 or 40 years. Right, right. Does does Lovins convince Ontario that it needs to do a big conservation campaign as well, where they start paying for people's insulation? Yes. They start building the assumptions that you can have, because the way utilities often do it is they'll say, we're going to assume everybody's going to use the most consumptive stuff they can. And Lovins is like, we'll just make that stuff illegal. And then people can only buy the hyper-efficient stuff and then you have to change your numbers. Like that's yep. the that's the game he runs all across America. And he and 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 he did it here as well. Yeah. Right. So it's uh, conservation first. Yes. Yeah. Megawatts is the thing. Megawatts. Megawatts. He, he also like he said in an interview. I'm excited for the episode Mark Nelson's going to do with Chris on Lovins coming up because I was watching an interview with Lovins where he said something like. The rebound effect doesn't need to obtain because you can make something so efficient that if you're going to electrify it, it almost doesn't add demand. And I was like, that's insane. <laughs> right, 
Right. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, uh, enough griping so, about so anyway, love. So so yeah, 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 yeah. So so you know, so they're meeting. And he's he's an unofficial advisor, and and so they go through this process. They cancel, you know, plans that were there to even build a fourth, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what happens then is, you know, we've talked about the whole liberalization wholesale markets, right? And you know, first in in Chile, then in the UK you know, you start to privatize and liberalize markets, whereby you break up these vertically integrated monopolies, and then you create a wholesale market mm-hmm. uh, that is managed by RTOs, right? Right, right, right. Uh, and people can go sit with my interviews with Meredith Anguin and Aidan Swanson for right. a deeper look at the RTO structure. Right. And so what happens is that this craze in the United States and in the UK, in the UK, there, it has two components. It has the privatization, mm-hmm. right? That is to say, these are publicly owned entities, and now we're going to privatize them, and we're then going to break them up mm-hmm. and create these RTO equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. Unlike the United States, where it was everything was private, mostly was private anyway, and so then you just had the one single element, which is the the breaking up and then creating these wholesale markets. We were not immune to that, that mm-hmm. whole neoliberal push for privatization and the creation of wholesale markets. And the belief that, you know, a clearing wholesale market should be the mechanism via which investment in, you know, the, 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 the an basic infrastructure such as electricity, we should rely on the market to do that, even though we had, you know, 50 years of pretty good experience that that wasn't the case because 50 years before that we had experiment with private markets at least we had in in canada and had rejected them but anyway these are the political socioeconomic swings the that ebbs we and flows right? yeah the ebbs and flows that's exactly it and so under a conservative government they adopt the california approach you know that was the leader at the time is that the, the good old blue book the blue book of right. regulation that's, that comes out in the right. 90s yeah that's right the blue book of yeah exactly and and they decide to break up ontario hydro and start to privatize it so Ontario Hydro was this vertically integrated generation transmission. They they hive off the 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 generation, separated from the transmission, and, and then create this wholesale market. And this is in 2002. So again, you know, I think New York was the first one to do it in 1996 or 97. I think New York was the same 2000. And then you get these you know you get these pushes, uh, including by legislatively by Enron to get, what was it, 25, maybe 30 of the United States to actually restructure and, and you know, break up these these monopolies and put them into RTO estates. And so it was based on that, that that kind of slowed down the whole process because, you know, they wanted to ultimately sell these assets, including the, including the, the nuclear assets. So that kind of put in the preparation for that and implementation of that process, you know, a lot of these refurbishments didn't take place mm-hmm. because it was it was kind of like 30 years after they had been built. And on average, they had to kind of be refurbished every 30, every 30 years. years. It's a little, it be, just because of the design, unlike the United States, which is kind of like 40, 45 years. Sure. In Canada, they have to be 30 years, or at least they thought it was having to be 30 years. So we lost a lot of 
of nuclear capacity at the point. But then when they were refurbished, it was the, the, the manner in which we, we got off coal, right? Uh, coal had taken you know, a 25 or 30% mix in the generation as a result of these nuclear plants going off offline. But then, you know, when there was a political decision to, you know, be the, you know, one of the first jurisdictions in North America to actually get off coal that had been on coal, you know, 90% of the heavy lifting was done by th- those nuclear plants that had been idling, right? Because the government had not wanted to commit to refurbishment. That's amazing. So you guys just they had these plants on, in the wings, you refurbished them, and then you decarbonized. Yeah, they weren't, like. yeah that's exactly it. They, were, <laughs> they had been turned off. They didn't want to be turned on. And some of them, you know, some of them were never turned on. But the ones that were turned on account for 90%. So, it, we're very, it, so it's not as if, you know, new nuclear was the manner in which we got rid of coal. It was the, it was the coming back online of, of, of a series of reactors that had been kind of mothballed or had not been refurbished as a result of the political and economic uncertainties that led to, you know, this reform process. Once the reform process was done, and ultimately, by the way, rejected, because they it was the sort of shortest experiment in, in wholesale markets ever, the government uh, ultimately went back on it about six months afterwards. But once that uncertainty was resolved, all of these were refurbished. We're now into the situation afterwards that, you know, we're going to be losing three gigawatt of, 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 of nuclear power, which account for about 21 or 22 terawatt hours. That is, you know, our generation is 150 terawatt hours. So, you know, that's about a sixth of our electricity is generated by Pickering and, and, you know, they're not going to be refurbished. Part of the reason they're not being refurbished was that, you know, the refurbishment of the existing operators, the existing uh, generation processes, sorry, uh, reactors is very expensive, right? We are now in the process of refurbishing, refurbishing 10 reactors and you know staggered obviously we're not taking them off all line right, at the yeah, same yeah. time but you know it's the largest you know investment decision in canada right now and those 10 reactors will have a cost of 25 billion dollars over over about 15 years that's 20 billion us dollars so mm-hmm. it's still a large chunk of money i'll say yeah yeah it's a large chunk of money but what happens is that this third reactor, a set of reactors, didn't make the didn't make the cut. The decision in 2013 to to also be refurbished. You know, again, the government of the day, given its own fiscal priorities, given you know you know not wanting the this OPG to acquire more debt. A series of fiscal restraints at the time made it so that, you know, they didn't want to refurbish all of them. They only wanted to refurbish the newer ones rather than the older ones. Right. On top of which, and this is the other thing that, you know, you've heard about from Ontario, is that that government of the day was all in on the Canadian or Ontario energy vendor. 
Mm -hmm. Right? So the political commitment to refurbishment of the nuclear was just not there or not 100% there because they were spending billions on wind and solar. I was about to say, yeah, it's got a lot of wind, if I remember, gets built out. A lot of wind. A lot of wind. Yeah. 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 I mean, so it's really a victim of its own present, right? It's, it's, right, you have these political concerns that are, exists within a certain power dynamic at the time, and that leads to this problem now. And so now it's about, I guess, renegotiating, or what's the plan for saving Pickering now? Right. And that's, and that, and so we're going to have, there's a, so, so Pickering, so the decision to not refurbish Pickering was a decision by the state-owned enterprise, mm-hmm. OPG, with with the, you know, the non-objection of the government at the time. But ultimately, uh, you know, the discussions that would have taken place would have been similar, like in that context of political and financial constraints, given that we want to favor wind and solar, mm-hmm. right? We now have a different, you know, political party in power. We're having a provincial election mm. in six in five months' time, and everyone is getting ready to to do what is necessary to make sure that you know the 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 best arguments are put forward for that if we do not want to go backwards in terms of climate. Mm-hmm. That if if we do not want you know these gas powered generators to ramp up to Mm -hmm. pick up 23 terawatt hours worth of power we will not be able to for sure be able to pick that up from uh wind and solar Um, no way the the political the the political will to put it this way one of the first things that this new government when they got elected three years ago was they repealed the Energy Venda Act, right? Mm-hmm. So the Energy Venda Act, um, it's called the Green Energy Act, was basically a copy paste of what was happening in Germany. Right, right. And 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 the 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 main mechanism that was used, in addition to conservation first, was the the feed-in tariffs, which are the equivalent of the net metering, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was it was to promote above wholesale market prices, the subsidized entry of, of wind and solar, those projects are receiving, are especially on the wind side, have all kinds of political pushback from rural areas in Ontario, mm. right? They're the main, the main element for our increases in our prices in Ontario for electricity prices. And the whole pushback on, on those are related to increases in energy poverty. We had two elections during which electricity was, if not the first, definitely the second policy debate, policy election issue in Ontario. And so the the, the current provincial government comes in and, and basically kills the Green Energy Act, the energy vendor. Mm-hmm. And since then, no new, no new renewables have come in. Under that context, it is impossible to think that, that we would have that any, that more than like one or two terawatt hours of the 23 that are being taken offline in 2000, 
2025 would be taken up by wind and solar. Oh, yeah. I mean, as, as Warren Buffett loves to say, the reason you build a wind turbine is to get the tax credit. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, you don't build right. it for energy. That's not what they're for. They're for yeah, tax yeah. credits. Yeah. Though, and though, yeah. And we have, and, you know, uh, we don't have that system. We have the system of, of, of what they have in Germany, which is, you know, whereby the, the, the developer, you know, gets, you know, 20 cents from the market by selling the market. But then uh, uh, there's out-of-market prices, out-of-market revenues to the tune of, say, 80, right? Okay. So they're getting most... So it's not a tax credit. Rather, it's a, it's a contract for differences where there's a wholesale market. They sell into the wholesale market at 20, but they get 80 on the side, mm-hmm. right? And that side is what makes electricity very expensive because it's collected from the rate base. Right, but anyway, all to say that you know that's not going to happen, and the realistic scenario is that it's going to be gas, and and you know it would be a real pity because we have a very emission grid right now. We have, we're certainly below a hundred you know grams per kilowatt hour. We're probably mm. one of the greenest grid. Anyone checks out you know the that that handy little mobile app on mm-hmm. you know electricity grid, we're always one of the cleanest in the world. Wow. And that's because we have we have 60% nuclear, 20% hydro, right, mm-hmm. from historical hydro. We have maybe 10% wind and solar, and then 10% gas, right? Mm-hmm. But what would happen is that that 10% gas would increase from 10 to maybe 25% if we were to lose that 15% from, from Pickering. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So how do people f- get involved? How do they find this? Where can you direct them to help out with saving Pickering? Sure. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a couple of groups that are, that are trying to do that. And then there's, uh, and then there's a couple of Twitter feeds. So there's a save Pickering site that, that we'll put in the show notes. There's a save Pickering Twitter, Twitter handle that we'll put in the show notes as well. And then we'll put some more, more things up on the, on the show notes to talk about a bit more about the history of, 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 of Ontario Hydro, uh, a little bit on the sort of history of the of the nuclear rollout. You know, again, it, it's something that very few people know about, even in Ontario, right? It's one of those right. things, right? It's like we are we are sixty percent nuclear, and and we have certainly lower rates than than our other non-nuclear provinces in 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 Canada, and we have much lower rates than much of the United States, and we have one of the cleanest grid, and that elimination of 25% of our grid that was that was coal was at the time and probably to this day the largest you know decarbonization initiative in North America so it was a very very significant yeah, uh, reduction that's huge that's yeah, huge yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. that's vital all right, people, you want to get involved, you want to see what's up, check the show notes. I had a great time. I learned a lot from this. I hope you did too. Ricardo, thanks for coming on. As always, you'll probably be back again, I am sure. <laughs> great. Thank you, Emmett. hope this was interesting for our American our American neighbors and great to be on, on, on again on this show. And best of luck on this new adventure. I am totally enjoying your Substack notes. They're great, your newsletter. And again, I don't think I have to preach the converted here to your listeners, but that sign on to those. Those are great newsletters from Emmett that I look forward to receiving every week. 
All right. Well, thank you so much. It means a lot to hear that. All right, everybody. Stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next week.